This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. It is my great pleasure to introduce our wonderful speaker this evening. Her name is Dr. Isabel Rivera Colazzo. Isabel is an assistant professor in biological and ecological and human adaptation to climate change at the Department of Anthropology and also here at Scripps. She's an environmental archaeologist who specializes in coastal and marine geoarchaeology, that is the combination of sediments and landscapes, archaeomalacology, which is mollusks in human context, and climate change. Her work focuses on applying a deep time perspective to understanding how people respond to climate change. She is particularly interested in how sea level and environmental change affect livelihood, specifically food and habitat security, and the role of maritime culture over social resilience. Professor Rivera Colaza earned her PhD in environmental archaeology from the Institute of Archaeology, the University College London, in 2011, with a dissertation on climate, coastal landscapes, and human occupations in the mid-Holocene in the Caribbean. She received her master's in science in paleoecology of human societies from the same university in 2007. Please join me in welcoming Isabel for her talk entitled, An Archaeological Perspective on Humans and Climate Change. Hello. Um, thank you all for being here, and uh, thank you for all being here today with us and uh, to listen about archaeology and climate change, that I am very pleased to have so many of you interested in this topic. So thank you very much for coming over. Um, just a few words of how come I'm here. I am, I am one of the new hires of, the, of between UCSD and Scripps. We have a series of joint hires that are shared between departments of part of the uh, Understanding and Protecting the Planet initiative. And uh, my position is shared between the Department of Anthropology and Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So I am actually in between two departments and um, starting to do really cool interdisciplinary research from an interdisciplinary position, which is very exciting. Um, so I am very pleased to have the opportunity to be here today uh, sharing this information with you and this perspective with you. So what I would like to talk tonight is about um, that archaeological perspective. How can archaeology contribute to an understanding of what climate change is? The concept of climate change is often it's all the time uh, showing up in our daily life. So we find it in our media, we find it in um, the newspapers, we find it in the radio, the television. We see about it, it's constantly bombarding us. We see both the um, intensity of how it will affect us. We also hear about uh, how it is already affecting us and how serious it is going to be. But at the same time, we also have governmental institutions working to try and mitigate it, such as the International Panel on Climate Change that is developing international agreements to try and bring the countries 
together and do something about it. Exactly at the same time, and with all this information showing us how urgent it is to do something about climate change, we also see a large amount of denial. So we see people that do not believe that climate change is happening and see no purpose on doing something about it. And it is not just the government or governmental figures. It's also normal, regular people that are really not interested on what's going on and what does that mean. The question is why. And my take on this question is the subject of today's presentation. So I know that scientists, and we all know, scientists have been for many years bringing hard numbers, bringing hard data to demonstrate the severity of climate change and the role that humans have had in accelerating this, the process of climate change. But there is a mismatch. There is a, a disconnection between the reality of daily life of people and that discourse that scientists are bringing. There is a separation between the needs of normal people and their urgent daily life matter in, and, and what the scientists are saying. So for the person who is experiencing today sea level rise and coastal erosion, the amount of particles of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere really doesn't mean anything. The, the number of degrees, if we're going, the temperatures will, will increase one degree or half a degree or two or three, it really doesn't mean anything because they need to survive. They need to live. So are we as scientists trying to get a different result from doing exactly the same thing over and over? We have been saying and presenting evidence about how severe this is. We scientists have been bringing this message for many years. Are we, trying, are we expecting a different result? Are we expecting to change the perception of the public using exactly the same strategy? There is a, we have been successful to some level. So we have the scientists. We have the science-informed public, which I am pretty sure most of you would today, the fact that you're here, fit into that description, the science-informed public, people who go beyond to understand what scientists say and how that will affect them personally. But there's also a large number of people who do not have the luxury of coming here and listening to these sort of presentations, to learning more and to improving their daily life. That means that we have scientists, we have the science-informed public, and we have everyone else. And there is a gap separating the discourse between what the scientists are saying and the needs and the priorities of everyone else. For, for, for the people who are thinking about their livelihood, their subsistence, what, literally what are they going to eat tomorrow, a figure of a polar bear holding on, on a piece of ice really means nothing. How am, are we going to expect that people who are fighting for their subsistence and their livelihood do anything or respond in any way to the discourse of archaeologists who are talking about melting ice and, and amount of water and particles of carbon dioxide? It really doesn't mean anything. There is a huge gap. And that huge gap is reflected on the discourses that talk about climate change. We hear of climate change from communities. So you hear of people saying, guys, the sea is rising and we are losing our land. 
we hear about the government, right? We hear the International Panel on Climate Change saying, hey, governments, you guys have to do something because these people are losing their land and are losing their houses. We hear about natural scientists saying there is more carbon, monoxide, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or the temperature is rising or the weather patterns are changing or the uh, biodiversity is declining. And we hear sometimes some governments saying we have a different policy and we're going to support or deny the EPA or we're going to do something or not do anything about this. But there is something missing, that link with people. We don't have anyone talking for the people outside of the communities themselves. Social sciences are missing in this discourse. And among social sciences, where is anthropology and where is archaeology? Where is archaeology? And you are here to listen about archaeology. So let's talk about archaeology. Why archaeology? How come it's not logical to think directly that archaeology has anything to say about climate change? Well, I hope that by the end of today, I'll change your mind. So why? Why people do not even consider archaeology as something that could contribute to climate change? Well, I think that the first reason is that when people think about archaeology, first they think of something that has nothing to do with archaeology, such as dinosaurs. All archaeologists have heard whenever you go out and say, hey, I'm an archaeologist. Oh, you have dig dinosaurs, right? Well, we don't. Those are paleontologists. But the other problem is that Maybe if we're lucky and we don't get asked about dinosaurs, we get asked about Rome and Egypt, right? People always go to that. If we are even luckier, some people might get this idea when they think about archaeology. None of these images talk anything about anything relevant. So at, to some extent, we as archaeologists are, are to blame for not having come up with relevant ways in which we can represent ourselves. Also, the sexy archaeologist does not look as a scientist working with climate change, right? So when people think about scientists working on climate change, archaeologists don't fit that description. But are we that's not who we are, even though I've seen people dressed like that in conferences, but not really. Um, so, okay, so just to explain, archaeology is the study of people. So we study human behavior. We study that human behavior on the past, right? So we study people, human behavior of the past. But that means that the past is gone. So our subject of study is usually dead. That means that we cannot go and ask them what they thought of something or see how they behaved. That means that we have to understand behavior through the analysis of the material remains of that behavior. That means that given that we study human behavior, we are closely affiliated to anthropology. And anthropology studies a really nice, wide diversity of things that are observable today in modern communities. Politics, demography, uh, demography gender, trade, economy, ritual, livelihood, and within livelihood, habitat and food security. So we, as anthropologists, as are experts in that area. However, our subject of study is dead, right? So we look at material remains. How do we look at that? Well, we you look for tools we, that have set different raw materials. We look at bone, thinking of the subsistence. All of you eat, most of you, or many of you could eat meat, and that meat 
is extracted out of animals, and we can collect the bones of those animals and see what you ate in the past. Or if you don't, we can also look at the plants, or we can look at dirt or chemical traces of human activity. So we, as archaeologists, are actually in a really interesting position because we are both an anthropological science, and we, as anthropologists, will understand human behavior and culture, but we are also firmly placed as a material scientist because we look for physical proxies of human activity. And then in that previous picture, I showed that people are interested, are worried about livelihood um, and culture, and that's one of the things that we can look at from anthropology. So coming back to this graph where we have a conversation of climate change, archaeology can actually expand that understanding by looking at the past and recovering the material remains of human behavior and using that knowledge to address the present or combine it with knowledge from the present, including heritage, including identity, issues of vulnerability and resilience. And we can use all, that, all those tools uh, of knowledge from the past to contribute to uh, predictive modeling and to expand our knowledge on how to respond to climate change. So it is the social responsibility of anthropologists and archaeologists to help bridge the gap between scientists and, and communities. Because scientists don't understand communities and communities don't understand scientists. But archaeologists, we try uh, to do something in between. So it is, could be seen as our social responsibility to, to help bridge the gap. Now, I don't necessarily want you to trust me directly just because I stood here and said that. But let, I want to guide you towards some examples on how it actually is done. So archaeologists have been saying for many years um, and anthropology, too, and many social sciences have been supporting this, this concept that there is, even though there is a physical, touchable, real environment out there, we as humans do not respond to that, to that concrete reality out there, but to our ideas about that environment. In order for us to be... Um, to respond, to be successful in our adaptation, there should be the, 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 the real environment and our ideas about it should be close together. So it should be near, similar one to the other. But not, that doesn't always happen. So that means that some ideas, the, the, the fact that we do not react to a concrete environment but to our conception and mental perception of it, there could be a mismatch between response I mean, to um, exposure, that means in some threat, physical threat, and our response about it. That means that um, disasters, as we conceive them, are actually not natural disasters. If you have a, um, if you have a, a landslide and there are no people around it, is it a natural disaster? It is not considered a disaster unless people were affected. So disasters are human phenomenon. So if we're going to think about the vulnerability of people to extreme change, even sudden or slow change, um, it is usually from the social and, and general um, um, vulnerability science, considered, vulnerability is considered as a formula of, that interrelates the concept of sensitivity, exposure, and adaptation, adaptive capacity. How people are, if people are sensitive 
to the to change if they are exposed to potential change and if they are capable to uh, adapt so let's I'll bring three lessons from the past to see uh, how we can use the archaeology to inform this concept of vulnerability. Um, the first case study is from the Levant, and I'll talk about uh, knowledge and memory. The second case study will be from Puerto Rico, uh, which is where I am from, um, talking about risk perception and human response and adaptation. And uh, the third case study is from Colombia. So. Talking first about knowledge and memory. In um, this case study, in the past, at the end of the last um, geological era, the Pleistocene, there was a very, very severe, dramatic climate change that brought the, the planet from the last glacial maximum into the Holocene. That, that's the, the um, more or less the climatic conditions of the present. So. That change occurred in a relatively short period of time, but people lived through it. So we are going to look at a very good archaeological record of how people responded to that change in the Levant, which is the area around Israel, Jordan, south of, of Lebanon. And in this case, we, have, um, we are going to look at five different archaeological um, societies, which would be the Kebaran that lived between 21 and 17,000 years ago, the geometric Kebaran 17,000 years ago, early Natufian, late Natufian, and pre-Pottery Neolithic. And all of these occurred at that transition between the end of the Pleistocene at the last glacial maximum and the beginning of the Holocene. That transition, that change from the last glacial maximum to the Holocene, and in this graph, the, the high part of the graph is um, cold and dry, and the lower part of the graph, the, when the, bar, the, the wiggly lines are coming down, it's wet and warm. So you can see that transition between the blue lines of the last glacial maximum um, all the way down to the, the last line, which is the pre-pottery Neolithic, and that is pretty much, much warmer and wetter. That transition between the last glacial maximum and the Holocene wasn't very wasn't smooth. So it wasn't a slow change. It occurred with many wiggles along the way. So we have periods. The last glacial maximum was very severely wet and uh, dry and cold. The um, the geometric Kebaran, the period of the geometric Kebaran, which is the end of the Pleistocene. That transitioned slowly. Every year it was warmer and wetter, warmer and wetter, until we get to the period known as the Bolinar-Alerot that coincides with the um, early Natufian period that was particularly wet and warm. But then it, the climate returned quickly to the younger dryas, which was again going back suddenly to cold and dry. And then it returned, and that coincides with the late Natufian. And then it go, went back again to wet and warm, which is the pre-Pottery Neolithic. So let's come to think of this in terms of people. So people in this period ate gazelles. That was the, the main staple food. It's, you know, it's a big animal. It um, gives a lot of meat with a relatively low investment in how to, uh, how to get it. Um, but they were also incorporating hares and tortoises. Mostly the, the, the hares was, um, of the small animals, it was one of the uh, favorite. So climate is something that we don't see every day, right? You don't 
no, neither of us sees climate. We experience weather, right? And you all know about that. So we experience weather. The same way in which we don't see climate, we cannot see the effect of climate on people. We see the effect of climate on the ecosystems where people get their resources from, and if there is a change from, on those resources that people are exploiting, then it could, be, it could affect their livelihood. So their subsistence gets affected. So when we have cold and dry weather, the, uh, cold and, white and dry climate, it's ideal for the uh, development of gazelles. Warmer, and also hares love that. Warmer and more humid favors the expansion of forests. Gazelles are not particularly fond of warm and, uh, warm and, and wet, but they do um, reproduce more often in warm, in warm climates. And the tortoise, they like um, warm, warm weather because of their thermoregulation. They are uh, cold-blooded animals, so they like standing out and, and getting warmer. Um, the forests expand when it is wet. So forests grow, and in dry climates, forests retract, and the grass and the steppes uh, expand. And why this is important? Because people were eating gazelle, and during the, um, the Kebaran period that was dry and cold, people were using the grasses that were in those steppes. They were using small seeded grasses. That's where uh, wild wheat and wild barley grow. So people were using those resources. Um, people were eating gazelle and sometimes getting whatever they could find too, but mostly uh, gazelle. The societies show a lot of flexibility, so they were not permanent. They would move around. They didn't have particularly strict territory, so they would use the resources as needed. When we move into the geometric Kebaran, which is the beginning of that warming period, people starting started uh, people started uh, limiting their mobility. So instead of moving around, there were more things that they could get from the same location. So they decided to start staying for longer periods in the same area and using the resources of those areas. Forests started expanding, so we see a change um, in those, in those um, patterns, but mo in those resources. But most is importantly, we see the use the presence of uh, more stable um, habitation areas. As we go into the early Natufian, which is the, the Bolling Alarod, which is a period particularly warm and humid, settlements were already permanent. So we see stability of the of occupation. More people living on the same location, so they were eating Needed to, they needed to feed more people from the same geographical area, um, so they had to get more. In t they, that's the archaeology term is the intensification of the production of that home range. Now, and um, so they will start diversifying their diet, getting more food out of the same space. When the Climate change hit the younger dryas. When it returned back to cold and dry, the forest started retreating and the steppes kept growing. So there was a change in the resources. And what people did, many people think that at that climate, that period of climate change caused a collapse of the society. But instead, if you look at it in detail with information about the diet, people returned to use the techniques that they knew from the past. So what happened? Well, people returned to exploit when, um, so the, the graph 
in the woody components and the grass seeds, the left side of the graph shows what people were doing during the um, early Natufian. So they were exploiting fruits and they were exploiting seeds of the forests and they were not using many grasses. But when we go into the late Natufian, that is the dry and cold period, they went again to use the seeds and the large, uh, the, the grass seeds and the small and, and large seeded grasses that are uh, abundant in um, the steppes. So they were going back to abandoning the settlements. They didn't build as large. They went back to have higher mobility, to exploit all the resources of their territory, to use the same subsistence as they used to have many hundreds of years ago. As the Younger Dryas ended and the Holocene begin, began, you know, of hard again, as wet and humid period, um, they liked the decisions that they took before. So they decided to go back being sedentary, but then start, the forest started growing. They started investing on keeping that forest away, and that eventually ended up with domestication, plant domestication as people started manipulating those grasslands and using that wheat and barley. So this example shows that memory, local memory of response and adaptation can go back thousands of years, and it is maintained by different social networks of learning. So it gives people tools to respond and to adapt and to um, have the, the strategies to respond to different conditions, even if they have not lived them as severely, it remains in the memory of that society. Culturally speaking. Culturally speaking, yes. So how this information could help us. Well, having local knowledge for response to, co to environmental conditions lowers your sensitivity to dramatic change. So it lowers your sensitivity to exposure. And by lowering your sensitivity to that exposure, it can help increase your adaptive capacity. So if we bring, if that is true, and then we consider the, the aspect of social memory, then we can look at the importance of deep time memory in societies and the fact that deep time memory is transmitted through generations. Um, in the case of Puerto Rico, that type of memory linked to subsistence and the, the, the local adaptation and local behavior of, regarding subsistence was transmitted in the markets or in the local um, production of food and subsistence resources. The process of colonialism, of um, local and international migrations has disarticulated those networks of support regarding subsistence. And many of those markets today lay abandoned. And the communities of knowledge and the communities of exchange regarding subsistence have been disarticulated. First, between people leaving the mountainside and going to the cities, and more, more recently, abandoning the island altogether and moving abroad. The market, the local market that was the center of activity of these uh, communities has been replaced by shopping malls. And in, that, in those shopping malls, those interactions and exchange of knowledge do not occur. So that means if we need that deep time information to help us increase our, reduce our sensitivity and increase our adaptive capacity, then that information has been lost. So it would be interesting to research, or it could be a suggestion from that knowledge in archaeology to assess 
our sensitivity because our adaptive capacity by losing that information should be decreasing. So Puerto Rico would be particularly vulnerable to a dramatic change for which no, local knowledge and traditional knowledge could give us tools to respond, but that information has been lost. So archaeology can also help to recover it. But so far, since it's not been done, then uh, we are, our vulnerability increases. Now, looking at a different example and staying within Puerto Rico, the concept of risk perception. So some scientists, scientists have argued that um, if risk is not perceived, behavior doesn't... Um, doesn't change. So people do not adapt to change if they do not uh, to risk if they do not perceive it, if they don't see it as a, as a threat. So uh, I'll take a case study of Puerto Rico. Um, we, exp in, we analyzed a speleothem, which is the, the rocks that grow inside caves. There are really good records of climate change and precipitation. So we investigated one in which we identified a, a period of high precipitation about 3,000 years ago. So um, it coincides, that period of growth, which is here marked in pink, or yeah, in reddish pink, um, that period of precipitation coincides with human occupation on the island. So there were people living on the island at this time of sharp change. So we have no growth on the, on the speleothem before then. We have growth during that period that reflects higher precipitation, and then it stops growing again. So, and we do have a record, archaeological record of people living on the island. So, and um, let me see. So, the, the question would be how did people respond to those changes? So, um, I'll focus on three sites. So, the site marked as number three, which is at the bottom of the drawing of the map, is located on the south of the island. It was uh, on, within marshes when it was inhabited. Today, it's ra rather far away from the coastline, but at the time it was inhabited, it was within a marshland environment. As precipitation increased, water table rose, so that marshland seemed to have uh, flooded. And what did people do? They decided to abandon the site. We do not know where did they go. We know that the site was abandoned. And after the period of precipitation, people returned. And not only did they return, they also brought back their dead. So they, that means that they changed their perception of the belonging to a location. When you bring your ancestors to the location, you, that site, the, the place belongs to you. The uppermost two, the one marked as number two, um, is next to a river within a very narrow uh, river basin. So that, that increase in precipitation brought higher activity in the river, and we see evidence of flooding, periodic flooding, very high energy, the position of sediments, uh, large-grain sediments, including boulders and everything. And we also we see habitation before the period of, of um, precipitation and after, af and after it. And even the con it's continued being inhabited all the way to the present. So there is really no break except for that period of, um, of very significant precipitation. So we do see an abandonment at that period. But do, we do think that people move to the coast, to the areas marked to the area, near the area marked as five in the map, because in, in the lagoon marked as four, which is called Tortuguero Lagoon, we do find a peak of microcharcoal deposits, which suggests that people were burning the grasses at a period of high precipitation. So it's not natural uh, fire occurrence. It, it was um, uh, man-made. But the, the people did move around. The site marked as one, 
is we look at this graph, um, the, the bar on the far side is the growth. So the dark, let's see, this area is the growth of the speleothem. This is the one on the north, the number two, that shows abandonment. This is the one on the south, also shows abandonment. But this site was actually expanded and grew at the time of that precipitation. So in this sense, location was particularly important to these people. They did not see that as a risk. They simply adapted to it and changed so they could stay in the same location. So what do we learn from this case study? First, that not all groups, even within the same society, because the material culture between these three sites is exactly the same. So not all groups within a single society respond in the same manner to the same, to the same threat because each of them will have different social priorities. What does this mean? That adaptation strategies that are suggested for particular groups need to take that social context into consideration. So adaptation strategies have to be tailored to local knowledge and to group priorities, because otherwise it will not be affected because people do not see a threat. People will not change their behavior unless it is made locally relevant. And it brings me then to the idea of rising sea levels um, in, in Fiji. In this case, we are suggesting relocation of these people um, because the sea level is rising. But the sea level is rising also in Miami. Are we suggesting relocation of Miami? We are not. Why? Well, there's something that archaeology can also contribute to. What are we going to do with Miami? Technology. So what do we do with technology? People always say, all oh, right, archaeology is not relevant to the present because now we have technology. Actually, we also had technology in the past. So technological solutions to sea level rise is let's stop the sea, right? Let's build a seawall. Well, let's look at the city of Cartagena in Colombia. It was built in the 16th century at sea level, exactly at sea level, and it was amazing. It did work perfectly. But since the beginning, because it was at sea level, it faced the problems of sea level during storms that is a little bit higher than normal sea level when you're building something. And what was the Spanish solution? Let's build a wall to stop the sea. In this case, we have a really nice example of deep time perspective of what happens when you do that. Well, the Spanish discovered that seawalls break. And you fix them, and they break again. And you fix them again, and you keep breaking. And for many years, they kept doing the same solution that we are still thinking of today, now that we are so amazingly technological. We are going to build a wall to stop the sea. And it breaks. So are we going, what are we going to do? We can use this knowledge as experience to learn from the past, to develop new solutions for the present. Today, sea level has risen about 70, 60, 70 centimeters above what it was in the 16th century. So the, the aqueducts of the city were tailored to that sea level in the past. And now, with the modern sea levels, it is permanently, some areas are permanently flooded. Um, so the city of Cartagena 
has to deal with this problem. What are they going to do with the sea flooding the city? Well, actually, it's an amazing collaboration between, they have been doing an amazing collaboration, the Institute of um, Culture and Heritage in Cartagena, in which they are collaborating with historians, archaeologists, planning, um, planning people, and students to develop a new solution, taking the knowledge of the past into consideration. And uh, so now they, instead of building over the same location where the Spanish have been trying to fix a problem for many years, they are trying to push back and extend the buffer between the sea and, uh, and the city by going beyond that solution and trying to give a, a higher margin of buffer to the city. And um, it doesn't mean that it's the perfect solution. It's also a technological solution. But it takes into consideration the fact that technology has failed for 300 years. So that brings me back to the so what of archaeology. So what? So what archaeology? Well, archaeology is a interdisciplinary, um, it's an interdisciplinary discipline that overarchs many specialties. And we can provide a multiscalar perspective that considers social and the natural sciences together. With this information, this deep time perspective, looking at the past to inform the present and, to, and the future, we can help um, vulnerability assessments. We can strengthen them because we can uh, give the conversation, start the conversation going about the, co the communities and the cultures and the diversity of societies. We can also gather knowledge from the past to inform the futures and inform adaptation and mitigation measures by building and, and enhancing the knowledge that we have as adaptation strategies. We can also uh, help community empowerment and resilience by helping people learn about their local knowledge, about their local histories, about their local um, adaptation strategies, and give them more options and not have them sit and wait until the government can come with solutions. So we can recover locally relevant cultural heritage that will make sense to people and that will help them move forward. Now, climate change not only threatens people, it also threatens heritage. So the National Park Service uh, has developed a guide and uh, to assess the threats of climate change. And we, there are many of us that are working in, in this assessment and intervention regarding climate change and, and cultural heritage. I'm part of a committee of climate change of the Society for American Archaeology, and I'm also working with the US Global Change um, Research Program in which we are trying to bridge these concepts. But the archaeological record of the planet that extends over 20,000 years gives us, it can be seen as the, I have a colleague that says that it's the, um, the Library of Alexandria. It's a knowledge, it's a huge archive of knowledge that can have answers to questions that we have, but is being threatened by climate change. So within the discourse of climate change, we also need to protect that cultural heritage so we can eventually learn from it. And with that, I end. Thank you very much, and I invite questions. Yeah, thank you for your interesting talk. I had a question about, it's like almost cyclical that people 
invented agriculture, but then it's too dry, so they go back to being hunter-gatherers to survive, and then it rains again, and so, you know, over a thousand years, they go back to agriculture. But you said something about an ancient knowledge, so I was thinking it's a one-way street where once you know agriculture but it doesn't work you remember what trees you could eat the nuts and fruits of but when you're in the period of eating nuts and fruits did somebody save all the seeds for wheat and knowing how to domesticate animals etc or does agriculture have to get reinvented from scratch every few thousand years actually i have um i have a story about that the Using the case study, an archaeological case study of the Fremont people in, in Utah and around the Great Lakes. So we do assume that when it's rainier, people will do agriculture, but it's actually the opposite because um, the, Fremont ha the, the ex case study of the Fremont suggests that um, when it was drier, people were doing agriculture because they can increase the productivity of an environment that is actually decreasing in productivity so they can manage the resources. The, the little water that is left in the water table can invite people to use the wetland areas that before could have been flooded, but as it becomes drier, they are just moist, they're wet. So people can plant their seeds in that area. And um, being hunter-gatherer does not mean necessarily that they completely abandon agriculture. It's called mixed economies. So you could have people that do hunting and gathering, but also do um, agriculture or horticulture to some level. Uh, so you could have people using multiple strategies. Really, at this scale of hunting-gathering, decisions are made, on a daily are made on a daily basis. So if they think that next month is not, is not going to be good enough, they will decide at the moment. Um, and just that several hundreds, thousands of years later, we see that as a hunting-gathering strategy or an agricultural strategy. But knowledge remains, and there are different people doing the same, different strategies at the same time, and you could even have one same community doing hunting-gathering and agriculture. Um, so it, it just continues. There is no linear process of subsistence resource decision. It's everything at the same time. From a technology perspective, you touched on uh, different peoples over time building seawalls. And being a, a Dutch heritage, I grew up with a you know, little Dutch boy sticking his finger in the dike and saving the, you know, saving the city. But in reality, today, don't the, don't the Dutch have a lot of technologies that, to build dams and dikes and hold back, hold back the water and successfully create new land that's both habitable and uh, productive for agriculture and, uh, and such? Yeah, certainly, that technique exists. And actually, it is learning from that technology that Cartagena has decided to develop the sort of adaptation that they are. But not everyone has the money to do it. So, And not everyone has the possibility of developing that sort of technology. And if we're going to bring this to the people who are suffering from climate change today, they might simply not have the, that could not be an option, not necessarily be an option. So to some people it might be, to some people it might not be, especially when technology is so costly and uh, at the end it's so, there's always a possibility of failure. So it's not saying that we shouldn't use technology. It should be within our 
range of options, but the more options we have within that range, the more resilient we'll be because we have adaptation capacity. If one thing doesn't work, we'll get to the other and we'll get to the other. If we put all our eggs in a basket and trust technology blinded, you know, blindly, if it doesn't work, what are we going to do? How many cities are planning to actually relocate themselves due to, due to, uh, uh, to the rising sea levels? How many cities? Um, globally or in the U.S.? Globally. Oh, my God. No, it's, um, I think it's 80% of the world population lives, I, I might be wrong, but it's a very high number, live within 50 kilometers or 50 miles from the sea. So it's a, an absurd amount of the world population that is directly, if it's, they are not feeling it now, they will feel it very soon. Um, the conversation of how many are going to relocate, I don't think anyone, I think everyone is putting their eggs on the technology basket. Um, except for the non-first world countries which, which are being asked to abandon their, their, their place and their, their islands or their cities. So at the people that are at the forefront of climate change, the people that are now feeling the weight and the burden, they have to move because there's no other option. Um, cities will have to make, they will have to make a decision soon because Miami's future and New York's future is not looking very pretty, but there are many cities that will have to make a decision. and. Um, when when scientists say that it's urgent to make something, it's true. I mean, it's really urgent to do something. Now, trying to get into people's head that that has to be done. Maybe maybe we can build another line of conversation. But many will be affected. All the coastal cities that are within nine meters of sea level, between zero and nine meters or more. Yeah. The community on Fiji that was told to relocate, what was their response? How did they adapt? Well, it's, it varies. So you have some communities that are actually doing climate change activism and trying to identify solutions. There are some communities within the Pacific that have relocated. The question is, and that is a discussion that happened at, in the International uh, Panel of Climate Change, who's going to pay for the relocation and where are they going to go to? Um, so that is a problem because the national boundaries today limit their possibility of mobility, which could be similar, that we're talking about territoriality, the same aspect that I spoke about in, in the in the Neolithic, in at the uh, the Pleistocene, at the end of the Pleistocene, so the territoriality of modern governments would limit their possibility of mobility. Some people are trying to fight and stay. Many people do not want to move. Other people say that you know re they are losing everything they have, so they have to move. Where are they going to go? I know that the um, in some. Okay, so this, the conversations that we've had regarding cultural heritage, um, the government, the U.S. government did invest in, in protecting a lighthouse that was collapsing, and it cost millions of dollars to lift it and relocate it, and they decided that it's too costly. They're not going to do it again. But now there's a community in Alaska that needs to move because of, of the melting of permafrost, the community is sinking, so they have to do something about it. And uh, it's a conversation that individual communities have, will have to face and are facing now. 
Are they moving? Are they staying? If they move, will they move as a community and everyone will be forced to relocate? Are they going to be individually and dismantle the community? So all those are the very hard decisions that each individual community has to take on their own. Hi, uh, thank you, doctor, for the presentation. It was really educational. Um, my name is Emily. I'm from UC San Diego. And uh, so uh, you talked about how, how archaeologists is serving as a bridge from between scientists and the public and make those obscure numbers and data seem more relative to the public and something that is tangible and we can um, impact us in some way. So uh, from that logic, I think as students nowadays, we are on the same missions as well because we are privileged enough to go to a top-ranking university. Therefore, we have the responsibility to contribute to the society and stop or prevent what negative effect um, coming from a lot of the human activities. So, um, well, me as my, myself, I'm a student activist. I've worked on a lot of campaigns about environmental issues, like the plastic bag ban that just passed, uh, Save the Bees, and uh, currently we're trying to push UC system, go 100% renewable energy. So if you would give any advice to everyone who's sitting here who is still a student, who might feel like they don't have a voice, their voices are not be heard and by the society they want to do something but afraid or feel like they're too small what would you advise what, what would the one thing you want to say to them to encourage them to do so thank you well my my first comment is that change occurs when an individual starts doing it so if we it change depends on you and not on trying to change something else so if we are all responsible of the world we want to live in so we we can make a change. Um, I had that same question pop up when I was working in, at the University of Puerto Rico, and we, I advised students to become activists. So we form a chapter of students uh, in Puerto Rico called the, uh, affiliated to the organization called Latino Network for Climate Action. And uh, we, as the students, were part, a very important, are still a very important part of that organization helping bridge the communities, the activists, and the scientists, and helping bring the message along. Um, and it's been very successful. They've been working very hard with this Latino Network of Climate Action, which I'm still part of in Puerto Rico. Um, so people can do a change, but the important thing is that not try there's no point on trying to change a very distant location. Change has to occur locally. So I in would invite students to get local and identify our threats here in our local communities, in our local neighbors, and try to make a change locally, and then things can pay themselves forward. Thank you, Isabel. That was a wonderful, inspiring talk. I think you left. And I want to thank all of you for coming this evening. If there are more pressing questions, please come up. And sure. um, Dr. Rivera Colazzo will be here to entertain your questions. Thank you. Drive safely home. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.